This episode of The Luminaries on Deep in the Weeds is proudly supported by Deputy. Rostering and timesheets without the usual chaos. I love turning that key in the morning, coming through my back kitchen, even turning the exhaust fan on, getting the sourdough out, setting the oven up, turning the flat top on and working out what stocks I'm putting on for the day and then going to my prep list and looking at what the boys have written up and going, well, we're going to do this, we're going to do this extra, we're going to do this extra, or whatever we're going to do. But I love everything about my job. This is The Luminaries on the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The notion of sustainability has moved way beyond a marketing catch cry with many now accepting it's a vital ethos and approach for everything we do. And although this is only a recent revelation, there are some who have implemented measures, systems and approaches over their career and found ways to not only make use of everything in a considered fashion, but ensure business viability too. Melissa Palinkas is a chef and co-owner of Young George Bar and Kitchen and Ethos Deli and Dining Room in Western Australia. Melissa, how are you? Wonderful, Huck. How are you? Good. It's good to catch up with you. You've set a real benchmark without doing a song and dance about sustainability, but it's really just woven through everything that you do and it has done for your whole career. Yeah, absolutely. It's. Um, I guess it was ingrained in me as a young kid like I grew up in a Eastern European background um my grandparents um didn't waste anything which spilt through to my mum and dad obviously um and my mum still to this day is cooking the same way that she did when we were kids saving everything and making sure she utilizes everything so uh I guess for me um moving forward uh it's it's a win-win for everyone because it's kind of like the way of the future is not wasting anything, but it's actually the old new because we used to be like this. We used to we used to, we used to cook and not waste, and then there's a couple of decades where things became very wasteful, and now it's like spun back around, and people are not wasting again, which is uh, really really good. Well, take us back to your childhood and some of the dishes that your mum would cook and, and how that no waste sort of theory was in action in your family. I guess uh, we used to go to this farm called Wally's Farm every kind of fortnight and Dad would go get a sheep and um, a whole sheep and chickens as well and they'd buy these boiling fowls and my mum would treat them like roasting chooks, which was uh, pretty hellish. But um, my brother and I used to laugh because she used to keep all the the chickens' feet. They came with heads and feet and all that sort of stuff, so she'd make stocks and make soups. And um, and then Dad would buy the whole lamb and we'd have mutton for days and every single part of that animal would be wrapped up in into um, into the freezer and um, every single part came out, including all the offal. There'll be we had a lot of livers and kidneys and all that sort of jazz when I grew up. I didn't particularly love it, but um, my mum grew up eating those things. So in turn, obviously, we grew up eating those things. Um, yeah, so the kind of dishes that she used to do would be like things in pot, one pot stuff, um, throw it all in. And yeah, we'd eat a lot of things like that. But she used to also get creative um, and make pies and using all the meats, using meat scraps and bits and pieces. And yeah, and even down to the veggies, like she wouldn't waste a thing. Like 
she would find a use for everything, even the carrot peels. Even she used to make ginger beer out of peeling ginger. So she used to peel the ginger and then um, keep the ginger peelings and she'd ferment it and make fresh ginger beer, which was awesome. Well, when, when did you first sort of get the lure of the industry and sort of consider chefing a sort of career path? Well, to be honest, um, I never chose a career in cooking. I, I wasn't going to choose a career in cooking. It happened by accident. So um, I have a huge love of music and art and um, I left school to pursue that and went to an art college and I started DJing as well and then I needed a job. So uh, one of my friends worked at the Brass Monkey, which in its heyday used to be one of an amazing venue. It had a beautiful brass room upstairs and a pub downstairs. And I got a job as a kitchen hand. And after about two months of working there, I realised that um, that's where I wanted to be. I always loved cooking. I cooked with my mum all the time. I cooked with my grandmother all the time as a child. Um, and I used to cook the family dinners and help mum and dad out when I was, you know, while well, mum used to work at night or, or, or vice versa. My dad worked at night, one of us would cook. Um, but, yeah, chefing was never going to be a career of mine. And here I am 30 years later doing it. <laughs> What was it like for you in those first couple of years as a chef, sort of having had the learnings and experience within the family of sort of no waste and then working in a commercial kitchen? Was it, was it surprising to you? Yeah, um, I, like, I, well, I was blown away. Like I loved every facet of it um, and everything obviously in catering or in, in, in catering kitchens um, comes in giant sizes. So I was just blown away by the big A10 tins and the A12 tins and the giant buckets of prep you'd have to do and the amount of um, vegetables that would come through the door every day that you had to prep. And, like, we uh, – um, when I first started cooking, um, we'd get 10 crates of chicken to bone out and – um, they'd just arrive in the kitchen and like all the apprentices had to line up and do all the all the chicken boning of chickens and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it was just I, I was yeah blown away. But I I think like the head chef at the time, Bob Rawlins, he he utilised everything. I remember him using every single part of everything thing that came through the kitchen. So um, it wasn't until later on when I went into others kind of types of cooking that I realise there's a lot of waste in it. During your career, sort of particularly in those early days, what, what were the sort of real important sort of influences and mentors that helped shape your direction? Oh, um, I follow a lot of um, American chefs and in my early years before I owned a business or I was just coming up through the ranks. I think when I went travelling to the UK, um, I started following um, Jamie Oliver. Everyone follows Jamie Oliver. That was Jamie Oliver was in his heyday at that time. Um, he was the naked chef um, and I loved what he did. And my friend actually worked for him and Ben O'Donoghue at Monty's in Sloan Square. And um, so I used to look up to my best mate, Ryan, because he – worked for these phenomenal chefs and um, he made me, shaped me into, um, I don't know, understanding ingredients more because he, he was so passionate and I was just rising, just I was passionate but I didn't really understand it. Um, but he taught me a lot um, along the way and I guess um, I follow a lot of American chefs as well. 
Um, and I think David Chang's probably uh, one of my favourite chefs of all time. Um, and that's because of how he uses ingredients and um, treats them really well, but also um, puts things on, he- spins things on their heads as well. Um, who else? Sean Brock. I love the the country heritage that he brings to, um, like, his style of cooking and ha- his love for all ingredients from the south, like even down to a grain of rice, which is amazing, and beans, uh, to, like, people like Grant Ackett's in Chicago doing amazing gastronomy. Like, yeah, so there, there's a lot of um, influences in my life as I've been growing, growing up as a chef. You mentioned your time in the UK. Take us back there. Do you have any stories of that time and sort of the impact that it had on you? Yeah, so I think when I went to the UK was when I fell in love with cooking, like fell hard for it. Um, I had never seen such beautiful ingredients. I'd never seen such colourful ingredients. I'd never seen such species of fish or um, meat and how it's treated and um, even walking in the high street. We, I live in Clapham Common near, on Rectory Grove and I, there's this amazing butcher and he'd have like game birds hanging in the window and I'd just walk past and be like, wow, this is like really opening my eyes up to to everything. Um, I ended up being uh, head chef in a, it was probably one of my first head chef gigs um, and it was in a gastro bar, like a gastro pub in, in the UK. So it's one of those... Um, you know, those groups um, and obviously there's an exec over the group and you follow their menus but you're allowed to, you're given like three or four things that you can cook yourself and come up with specials and stuff like that. So um, that's where I was like, wow, I get a t- I'm going to get a chance to like do this incredible, use these incredible ingredients and, yeah, it was mind-blowing to be honest. When you came back to Australia, uh, tell us about that period of time. Were, were there challenges having sort of that experience that you'd had in the UK with those ingredients and that inspiration? Was it was it challenging to come back to Perth? Yeah, it definitely was because I felt like I'd just moved from such vibrancy to such non-vibrancy and the food scene was not really happening in WA like it is now. Like now it's absolutely it's blown out of the water. Like it's it's unbelievable the things that we restaurants you can go to here now. But yeah, coming back was um it was really hard for me to find a place and really hard for me to work out where I was gonna cook and what I was gonna cook and yeah, it was very, very difficult. What was the turning point for you? Because your your career has flourished as the food scene has evolved in Perth and you've become a really integral um person within that evolution what what sort of changed and um, headed you in that direction I wanted to do my own thing and I've always wanted to do my own thing so um, I went through kind of stages in my career where I didn't really know what kind of a chef I wanted to be I just wanted to cook my own food so I ended up uh in the Swan Valley at a, at a microbrewery, one of the first ever microbreweries besides uh, Feral Brewing um, in the Swan Valley. So I ended up there as head chef. I stayed there for four years and I was just doing brew pub food because I, I'd come back from from that kind of vibe and I put my own little spin on it and I started um, playing around with making um, charcuterie. I remember buying pigs off farms um, out in Newshay and I'd get Vince Goreffa to come down and uh, he's a 
bit of a personality butcher here uh, and show me how to make the prosciutto, and, um, which was really cool. That's where I kind of like started doing that kind of stuff. Um, and then I got sick of running a 350-seater and smashing out food that I wanted to kind of refine that. And so I started working at the Cabin Small Bar and that's where my career really took its turn, I think, um, I got noticed by Rob Broadfield, um, the food editor of West Australian, and um, I was doing food. He called it dude food, but it was a bit dude foody, but I also did other food. Um, but I started honing my skills into, like, charcuterie and no wasting and utilising everything, and that kind of was the starting point of my career where everything just started – it slotted into place. Everything made sense. Um and what I had to do to, to achieve it. Well, tell us about that sort of drive and, and move into um, your own venue and, and what sort of impact it had on your cooking. Um, well, firstly, it's the creative side of that, like the creativity of, of working out what to do with X, Y and Z after the primal um, is extracted kind of thing. So what what am I going to do with those stalks? What am I going to do with those pollens on top? What am I going to do with those leaves? The leaves taste nice. Can I make a stock out of that? What does that, that, that liquid taste like? I'll give you an example. Um, we did, we juice a lot of lemons in the bar, limes in the bar, and we have all these lemon skins and lime skins and I'm trying to work out what to do with them. Um, so I actually make a soda out of them. It's uh, like a bitter lemon soda, and I use xylitol instead of um, sugar so it doesn't ferment, uh, which is a sugar-free lemon drink. Um, but, like, the possibilities of um, like of what you can do are endless. So I think that creative kind of drive in me um, drove me into, like, wanting to work around sustainability and um, no waste and educating people on how to actually cook and use everything. This episode of The Luminaries on Deep in the Weeds is proudly supported by Deputy, helping managers and staff do their best work. Hospitality is all about the connection. A business starts with passion, but gets bogged down with all the complexities that come with life, society, and rules. If you can simplify this mundane, then people can be happy and they can thrive. And when you have happy staff members and happy managers, your customers will sense it. They'll be happy. And you create that connection. That connection is hospitality is about. For more information, go to deputy.com. Tell us about the creation of, of young George. How did that come about? Well, actually, it was Rob Broadfield who rang me up one day. I just had um, a, rang me up one day and said, "Do you want to own your own restaurant?" And I was like, "I would." I had just gone into the chair, right, and had my both my carpal tunnels done, and I was sitting at home on some serious painkillers, and my phone rang, and it was actually um, what was it? Uh, St Patrick's Day, it was, and um, it was Rob, and he said, "How how do you feel about owning your own restaurant?" And I said. Well, yeah, I'd love to, you know. So um, he goes, well, do you want to come and meet me at this place? I'm going to give you an address. So I came down to Frio and it was an existing business called Young George and it's homage to, um, the name is homage to um, actually ACDC, the highway to hell. 
and the the lightning bolt um and yeah the young band so um yeah so they were doing pizza and street food and i was like oh man i'm not sure that this is my jam and definitely not my jam and they said well you can do whatever you like and i was like so i it was an investor and the chef so um Oh, I had creative reign in the kitchen and, yeah, so I was able to create my own menu and do whatever I liked, which was awesome, and they all signed off on it. So that was how it kind of started. But then it just evolved and evolved and evolved because I was able to do whatever the hell I wanted to do. So um, anything I wanted to do, I was just doing. And so um, all my cooking all my cooking dreams were coming true and um, that's how I really – started realising that um, my cooking style was like not like anyone else's and that um, I was just seeing so much potential in all the things that were in my freezer and my fridge. And, like, from a um, financial point of view, that's amazing, but also, like, showing the chefs what to do with, like, stale bread. You don't just have to make croutons or anything. We make crackers out of it. We can, you know, do heaps of different stuff with that. We can make flour out of – we can reconstitute it. We can make flour out of – sourdough and make another pastry dish out of it so um yeah so it's it's the mind boggles it's endless it's absolutely endless what i do so and fun are are there any sort of any sort of dishes from that period of time when you really got to express yourself and explore your food that sort of speak of of what your food was like then Uh, let me think yeah so um i did this rice cake um which was inspired by um a trip to New York when I went to uh, the Samba in Momofuku uh, in uh, East Village. And David Chang held all these, um, he had these rice cakes and they were really cool, but he deep fried them. So I decided not to deep fry them. So I cooked the sushi rice, rolled them into cylinders, and then um, I got fish frames and I scraped the fish frames back and made like a fish frame tartare. So we were filleting fish and I was like, well, this stuff's still on here. So not only can go on the stop, but we can also use this meat once we like peel it all off. So we get the back of the spoon and the chefs would have to take all the meat off the off the carcass and then we'd um, add the seasonings and stuff and put it on top of the rice. And everyone's just like, what the hell? This is amazing. I actually did a masterclass um um, with that that actual dish about three years ago for um, it was for some at homes and they um, wanted to do some no wa- stuff around no waste and um, the the house the lovely housewives were like blown away and they sent me pictures of them um, making the making the sushi rice cakes with the fish tartare on top which was quite cute so what were the challenges and and was there anything that surprised you about owning your own business that you kind of weren't aware of previous to that yes um that it's hard (laughs) i'm not gonna lie it's hard um everything sits on your shoulders um all your it's hard to explain like you try you try and do everything yourself to make it perfect which in turn burns you out and that's probably one of the places I've been many times. Um, but slowly I'm pairing that back. So a few years ago I decided to get a head chef and relinquish some of my, you know, kind of like control over what I was doing because I was just burning myself out. Um, 
and compromising my own like happiness. So myself and Suze were like, we're at a point now, we're at a really good point now where we've decided that that's not, we've got to get that balance because we've worked so hard for like seven years in this business that, um, and the other business as well, not to mention, um, that it's now time for us kind of thing. Um, and the, I guess the drive to be successful um, and to get to that success is amazing, but then there's got to be some sort of give. Do I want to keep being this successful for the rest of my life or can I, like, be happy in where I'm at with what I've done and kind of just go forward in a different way but still have these successes and still have your business but just work, work smart, I guess. Was it hard for you to relinquish that sort of control over sort of the food and everything mm. that you do? Mm. Yeah, so um, I still, like uh, at the moment, um, I don't have a head chef at the moment. I don't even have a sous chef at the moment. So before I didn't mind, like I only used to give them like little, um, I'd let the chefs, they'd have to bring the dishes to me and stuff like that. Um, it was hard, but I realised that I had to look at how they felt in a role under someone like me and when they wanted to create and that's all I ever wanted to do was create my own food. So you've got to give them that to keep them in- interested but they also wanted to learn. So, um, yeah, it was hard to let go but I've let go a lot now. So I even let my apprentice come up with um, some great desserts and inspiring them to to cook how they want to cook and we go through it, we dissect everything. And, it, yeah, so one of my apprentices – come up with he loves cooking pastry or he loves pastry and uh, he's come up with two cracker desserts and I couldn't really fault him so why wouldn't I put him on the menu so at the moment um like I said I've got no sous chef no head chef um and so I'm collaborating with my junior sous chef and um all my staff are 25 years old but they're all amazing cooks they're all absolutely amazing um so I allow them to experiment and cook their cook the staff meals and sometimes I go that sauce is really amazing maybe we could put that with the fish make that sauce up for me and so yeah so I've learned to let go a lot ethos deli and dining room really epitomizes sort of your cooking and your approach to sustainability uh, where did that idea come from and tell us a bit about it um right so myself and Sue's have this massive love for New York um, and prior to COVID we would go there every year pretty much um, and I love the New York I love there's something about deli a New York deli it's just it's so cool like on every single street you'll see two or three delis well it's a dying breed actually but um, the deli the deli is dying over there um, there used to be like 1500 and now there's like probably 30 or something now and a couple of the famous ones are still there, but um, yeah. So and and um, I love the um, the immigration, the migration of like you know Eastern Europeans that came to New York and started these delis. They were all Eastern European, and it resonated with my background being Hungarian German. And so we kind of threw this concept together that we wanted to do something around that no waste platform where. Um, like peasant style but not elevated but utilising every single thing in the cooking as well as this deli concept as well, So, which um, was also with my nose-to-tail charcuterie. So it, it's, it sounds a bit of a mess while I'm talking about it, but it all comes together in the way that we wanted a deli and we wanted a dining room that reflected 
like the the food of nose to tail, root to shoot, um, and utilising everything as well as using sustainable practices in our kitchen, eliminating plastic, only use, we use wheat straws. I mean, most people these days go for all that stuff now because they realise the importance of um, sustainability because we're not going to have a decent planet if we don't start looking after it. Um, but, yeah, so that's basically it. You've uh, been fascinated with charcuterie for a long time now and it's and it's obviously at the core of what you're doing at Ethos, Ethos Daily as well. Um, tell us a bit about making charcuterie and, and sort of – um, what's required? Do you have a favourite that you've created? Um, I, to be honest, I love to make all of it, but I'd probably say one of my favourites would be um, capicolo, which is basically neck, the pork neck that's stuffed, uh, marinated and then cured, then marinated, then stuffed into sheep bungs and then um, aged in uh, one of our curing chambers for like three months. But I love all aspects. Like I'm about to make mortadella today for the deli. Um, and yeah, so I guess, I don't know, there's something really satisfying about utilising, like, so we utilise different cuts of meat off the whole carcass that you can make charcuterie out of that people aren't making charcuterie out of. So we use like the rump of the, of the pig and we make something called rumpetto because that cut is usually either minced down um, but it's got a beautiful cap of fat on it and it looks like um, it could be like, I don't know, Coolatella or something pretty cool. So we, we all the pig's legs that we have we make into rumpetto. Um, yeah, I love all of it. I can't explain it. It's just I have a real real love for making charcuterie. Uh, you're, you're in business um, with your, your partner in life as well, Susan. Um, what's it like uh, working and living together and, and striking that balance with two really successful venues? Um, Susan and I are like so yin and yang but so right for each other at the same time and we find it very easy to work together because we actually – we can ESP each other, honestly. It's hilarious. And we both know what we're thinking and we both know it's crazy. Um, working and living together and it's it obviously has its, its times where it's tough and it's usually one of us is going through something like oh, they don't, she doesn't have any staff and then I'm fully staffed so I'm okay or the other way around. At the moment, it's me, no staff, and she's okay. But last last week or the week before, it was the other way around. Um, we just get through it together. We encourage. We always encourage each other, um, try and help each other where we can, always keep the communication lines open. I, if she needs something, I will always be there to help her because I work up at Young George and she works down at Ethos. So um, if she needs help, I will always go up and help her. If I need something, she'll always come down and help me. Um, but really just, I know teamwork makes a dream work, doesn't it? So in life, as life partners, as well as business partners, as well as, you know, um, yeah, teamwork's everything. So communication, teamwork. You mentioned a bit earlier how much uh, the food scene has evolved in Western Australia in the in the last sort of decade or so, and you've been a huge part of that. Um, tell us a bit about food in Western Australia at the moment and, and kind of where it's at. Um, so... Oh, the scene's exploding. There's new places. I don't even know how because we've got no staff over here. There's a new place opening every second week. Do you know what I mean? Um, 
but it's going from strength to strength. Um, like the the quality um, it, across the across the whole platform of our, our dining scene is amazing. Like it's all about a lot of everyone's using like super uber cool ingredients that are completely local to us, indigenous to us. Um, obviously. We are land. We're locked, landlocked at the moment, and we can't get really get anything um, from you guys. Or so I think a lot of people's approach has been like using local sustainable produce over here. Um, we are lucky in that we have so much of an amazing food bowl from in Western Australia where we can grow whatever we want at all times of the year uh, in any season. Um, so I just see a lot of seasonal, a lot of um, utilising um, secondary cuts now as well. Um, and people also taking the simple is best approach. Sustainability is on the sort of tips of everyone's tongue and a real focus of everyone, but you've been doing it for the majority of your career. What, what sort of advice would you have for those in the industry that are trying to adopt uh, and change old habits and have sustainable businesses uh, moving forward? Um, I'd say look at what goes in your bin for starters and tell me that it doesn't make you upset to see what you put in your bin. Um, like I, I haven't touched on this yet, but I think one of the biggest things is fine dining is one of the most wasteful, um, dining, uh, what is it? Not dining. One of the most wasteful um, types of dining, um, cooking, sorry. Um, but I would say look in your bin and if you're happy to throw out all that stuff that you could actually get creative with um, or also like think about our planet and what is required from us as an entirety to um, keep our planet like from going backwards. Um, oh, what else? I think for me, I would say to start using less plastic, um, start using crates to get your fruit and vegetables in with, um, ask your fishmonger to just use the crates that they get the fish in with no lining, which I do. Um, so start small, just going to your suppliers firstly, I guess, is the biggest thing. And most of them will do that for you now because a lot of them are championing um, sustainability and sustainable practices within their within their products. I know many um, producers that are completely, completely and utterly down that road. Um, but it is the way of the future. So just start with little small things like that. Um, get the wheat straws. Don't use the plastic straws. Use biodegradable coffee cups that you can throw away or that can be compostable. Um, yeah, just little implement implement little things. WA, um, as you sort of mentioned about sort of being uh, landlocked at the moment, has had a, a little bit of a different experience as the rest of Australia in regards to hospitality, but not without its challenges. What, what, what's some of the positives to come out of this situation and how do you see the rest of the year? Uh, the positives that have come out of the situation is we've been able to sustain and not go backwards. Um, we've been able to live like quite a free life and Hospitality in itself has been quite booming um, 
and without these all these lockdowns and stuff, we've been able to like you know pay our rent and pay our staff. And what I'm seeing over on the east coast absolutely petrifies me. And a couple of my friends are working for like groups and stuff like that, and they've they're just like bleeding money everywhere. And as a small business owner, like freaks me out. Um, about that, but in the last couple of years, we've been very, very lucky to um, be able to go out dining, not wearing masks, um, and move around freely. But um, we know it's coming, so um, and it's prevalent in the community now. Only a very small amount, obviously. You guys see the statistics, um, but people are definitely scared of it. But um, I think you know, going forward, we just need to rip that bandaid off and get through it. The quicker we get through it, the quicker we can go back to normal. Um, as much as I'm petrified about it, um, it just has to happen. Your, your influence uh, in, in WA is, is amazing. What do you love about what you do? Everything. <laughs> Everything. I, I love walking, turning that key in the morning, coming through my back kitchen, even turning the exhaust fan on, getting the sourdough out, setting the oven up. I love turning the flat top on and working out what stocks I'm putting on for the day and then going to my prep list and looking at what the boys have written up and going, well, we're going to do this, we're going to do this extra, we're going to do this extra, whatever we're going to do. But I love everything about my job. Um, Probably um, produce, I'm very produce driven um, and obviously I like to look at every single part of that produce and work out what I'm going to do with it. Um, Yeah, so everything about my job I just love and I wouldn't change it for the world. Well, you're an inspiration, Melissa, and it's been an honour to have you on the Luminaries today on Deep in the Weeds to hear just a little bit of your story. Um, please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Great. Thanks, Hart. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.